Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Brian Portnoy. He writes extensively on personal finance and investing. He has a new book out with Josh Brown titled How I Invest My Money. It's a collection of 25 personal essays from financial advisors and experts where they share the details of how they save, spend, and invest their own money. We get into issues related to happiness, contentment, risk, indexing versus active management, behavioral finance, equities, bonds, real estate. It's a fascinating discussion and an interesting look at something we don't often get a chance to explore, the details of how experts in finance use money to get what they want out of life. Brian is one of the most thoughtful and articulate guys out there writing in finance right now. This one is a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brian as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Brian Portnoy. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Brian Portnoy, welcome back to The Good Life. I am very happy to be here. Well, it's good to have you back. You were the inaugural guest on The Good Life, episode number one. So I'm excited to have you back. It's still our most popular episode, by the way. So you must have said something of value. You've got a new book that you've co-edited with Josh Brown. It's called How I Invest My Money, Finance Experts Reveal how they save, spend, and invest. And it's a series of essays by financial experts, which I found really fascinating because they reveal and write about their own personal investments, how they approach their own finances, talking earnings, savings, investing, spending, retirement, college savings, owning a house, discretionary spending, even healthcare. I mean, it just runs the gamut, vacations, how they think about risk. It's really fascinating. So why don't we start with, you know, where did this idea come from? And what were you trying to achieve with this book? The way it started was pretty straightforward. Josh Brown wrote a blog called How I Invest My Money. That was maybe a year and a half ago. It was a while back. And you know, Josh and I are friends and I texted him and I said like, hey, this thing is great. And when Josh gets into topics he's really passionate about and he speaks from the heart, I think he's exceptionally good. This was him just answering the question, like, how does he invest his own assets? And, you know, for the most part, in align with the way that his, you know, he, he heads up a big financial planning firm, it maps up to that. But then he's got a wife and two kids and certain people that he wants to support and passions and values. And, and so it wasn't overly detailed, but I thought it was really good. And I struck up dialogue about the fact that Everybody in our industry, people like you and me and other advisors and educators and coaches, investors generally, should speak from the heart about how they invest and to the point that you importantly made, not just invest, save, spend, borrow, give, think about the future, think about risk. The light bulb went on very quickly. We thought of there being an edited volume. I have a good relationship with the folks at Harriman House, which has become sort of the megaphone for financial Twitter. They're published me and Daniel Crosby and now Morgan Housel. Now there's this project. 
And uh, they loved the idea. And so from the moment I texted Josh about how much I liked his essay to us having a book contract with Harriman House was four days. That's got to be some kind of a record. for. I was very happy that Craig Pierce, our editor at Harriman House, liked the concept. And, you know, as you and I have talked about and people have begun to observe, it, it's just rare that financial experts reveal like how they invest their own money, which seems like people should have said this earlier. I mean, we have things like market wizards, right? Like the whole, you know, how many books and volumes about like how the masters of the universe invest other people's money. And here's the way that they trade stocks long or short or commodities or bonds or make macroeconomic observations and predictions. And this book is really the anti-market wizards. Like no BS, no self-promotion, no sort of what's your investment process for your clients. It's how do you do your own thing and why? Yeah, it's just fascinating. Josh has an interesting fact that he reveals in his introduction. He did 1,300 hours of questions on financial TV, answered questions on all kinds of things like, are interest rates going up? You know, What stocks does he like? And this and that. No one ever asked him, how does he invest his own money? It's not something that we talk about a lot, not something that comes up in cocktail parties or things like that. And so to have people from the industry talk about how, in a very revealing way, you know, talk about how they invest their money, I found quite interesting. What surprised you the most as you went through these essays? Is there anything that really jumped out at you when you got these essays back and you kind of looked at them in totality? I guess I'll call it a surprise. I'm struggling with the word a little bit because I'm not sure if it's exactly what I mean. But, and I point this out in the conclusion where I tried to summarize the entire volume, but I was surprised slash blown away that the 23 others, so me and Josh and 23 others that we got back were stories, meaning that it wasn't a bullet point list of your portfolio. None of them were just sort of dry renditions of market views and market positions. We basically said to people, here's Josh's essay, go write your own version. That was literally the instruction. So literally and figuratively a blank piece of paper, but don't feel like this is an exercise in bullet point portfolio positions. It's all dimensions of money life, earning, saving, spending, investing, borrowing, giving, insuring, you name it. And if you can and want to attach it to your values and your larger purpose in life and the bigger things that you think about, even better. That was really the extent of it. And I would say with some authors, we didn't even say that much. I guess it was a surprise and a very pleasant one that what we got back were stories of every possible stripe from people all over the ecosystem of our industry and really proud of what a kind of diverse set of perspectives we brought to bear because we've got contributors in their 20s and in their 60s. We've got financial advisors and portfolio managers and venture capitalists, men and women, people of color, folks that haven't had the most traditional upbringing in the world of like Wall Street investing. And I think that added some real flavor to the entire project. I would agree with that. One of the things that I really appreciated was the honesty 
And they're very human stories that money is a part of our life. It's not everything. How we approach it depends on so many different factors, our upbringing, our experiences, maybe even our DNA, as one of your essay contributors was talking about. But they're very human stories. And you get a sense that each person approaches money in a little different way. So you don't get a cookie cutter approach. You get, you get 25 different views of how to approach money. And as a reader, what you can do is learn as you go along and pick out strategies that might work for you. I'd like to talk about a few. Maybe we can get into one early on. You mentioned him already, Morgan Housel. And Morgan was a guest on The Good Life, episode 30. And he talks about independence and how he's looking for optionality in his life. One of the ways that he did it, and this came up in a few other essays, is he, he calls it, uh, we got the goalpost of lifestyle desires to stop moving at a young age, he and his wife. And that came up, I would say, in three or four other essays. And I really earmarked that as being something that's really important. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, when you think about some of the really important themes that thread through the entire volume, financial independence definitely ranks at the top, which makes sense. I mean, generally in life, we kind of want to do what we want to do. You get sort of one ticket for the ride and before it gets punched, like you kind of want to have some fun and do some good. And, you know, Morgan's as eloquent a writer as there exists in finance right now. So we were really lucky to have him as our leadoff hitter. You know, that line about goalposts is sort of an adjacent but super important point to the independence point. So yes, you do, of course, want to be able to do whatever it is you want to do. Freedom, liberty, opportunity, you know, great, all good, not very controversial. But then Morgan, who an expert in behavioral finance and a number of people in the book write in the behavioral finance world, including me. And we're all familiar with this notion of the hedonic treadmill and the idea that no matter how fast you try to sprint towards something called happiness, when you're on a treadmill, you don't really get there. You you might have ephemeral moments of pleasure and then those fade quickly and then you're kind of on the hunt for the next thing. And so what Morgan did and a few others, as you point out, is, is address the issue of lifestyle creep and the idea that, well, you know, I was making... 40 grand a year, and now I'm making 60, and I was making 60, and now I'm making 90, and up and up and up the ladder. And the way we fill our lives and our homes and everything else just sort of continues to grow so that we always feel like we want a little bit more. Morgan was just very eloquent in talking about how he and his wife you sort of made a decision to fix the goalposts. Doesn't mean that you don't strive for more and better and and lots of great things, but you know, being deliberate and intentional about the things that you want more of, I think is one of the sources of a joyful life that's hidden in plain sight. What I took away from that is as his income went up and he was able to keep his lifestyle in check, not that it didn't grow, it just didn't grow as fast as his income in many ways. And he was able to save more and more which was getting him to his ultimate goal of being able to wake up in the morning and do what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants, and working on projects that are meaningful to him. And and that is how he defined true wealth and that money was a means to get there. You talk about one of my favorite terms. We talked about it on the very first episode. You call it funded contentment. And I think it's very closely related to what 
Morgan was talking about. Can you kind of explain funded contentment a little bit? Because I saw funded contentment in a number of other essays as well. I didn't see those words always, but I think what you mean by funded contentment is also a theme that sort of came up again and again. I mean, just jumping off from Morgan's chapter, and in, in his own way, he very much wrote exactly about funded contentment. He has a line, and I think I'm quoting, it's off the top of my head, that wealth is what you don't see. It's what's left in the tank. It's the options to do things that you haven't yet done. I think that's brilliant, almost haunting in its eloquence. The way that I talk about similar issues is through this notion that what we really want is a meaningful life that there's different types of happiness and joy and contentment and pleasure. And, you know, day-to-day happiness is one thing and it's not trivial. It's not unimportant. It's what's most important most of the time because we want good things to happen every day. We want to be in a good mood, but there's this deeper sense of what I've written about as reflective happiness, where you do think about a life well lived. We don't do that all the time because it's, it's physically exhausting. You know, our brains or muscles get tired. So we're not sitting around all day thinking about what the good life is, but it's important to each of us in our own way. Heck, it's the name of your podcast. So there's then that next step that, and it's awkward and uncomfortable for many, and I would say most people, that a meaningful life costs something. Like money is an inescapable topic. And I'm not here talking about choosing the right target date fund or you know the right way to own municipal bonds. That's a decision 20 steps down the road. I'm talking about what's really important to you and how do you think about the financial life that you'll want to lead in order to be able to be those things. And so, yeah, the term I've used for a few years now that I'm building a new business around, it's funded contentment, but you start with the contentment piece. And whether it's your connection to others, that sense of belonging, or your sense of mastery over a particular craft or your vocation, or your attachment to bigger things in life, faith, your patriotism, your attachment to place, there are a number of things that drive that deeper sense of joy. There are better and worse ways to think about how to underwrite those sources of meaning. And that's what I call funded contentment. And I'd say through the first 20 plus years of my career, I was really focused on the funded side, picking the right fund managers and being in the right market and all that stuff. And that's fine. And I really, for myself, but then for my career, wanted to flip the script and just let's say, let's start at the other end of of the telescope. Let's think about contentment first, then what does it cost to underwrite those sources of contentment? And, you know, for the chapter that I contributed to the volume, you know, I, I walk through things that are sort of enduringly important to me and to Tracy and the kids. And that's where we're focused. And the portfolio that I talk about in a fair amount of detail has been designed to some extent to fund contentment. It's a messy process. It's a sloppy process. I was joking with someone earlier today that in life, we frequently paint the bullseye after the arrow has been shot and then claim that that's what we were aiming for. So, you know, I'm probably pretty good at that. I was going to say, it's a lot easier that way. Right, but it's BS. So the way that I've ended up investing my family's money and the way I think about taking care of my kids and my aging parents and siblings and doing what we want to do for our community 
It's been and it'll remain a work in progress. But for now, I've got a mental model for how to do that. And I shared that with the world. And what's cool, I hope, for readers is that my life might not be in any way interesting or recognizable to a particular reader, but I'm guessing that there's somebody in the volume and probably one or two or three people where it's like, huh, they're just like me. How are they trying to figure it out? Not how have they figured it out? How are they trying to figure it out? Because everybody in here is a work in progress. Funded contentment is a great concept. And to me, the way I look at it is it's the best answer I've come across to getting off that hedonic treadmill the treadmill of more and earning more and spending more to try to fill some kind of void or to match an ego. Morgan has a great line. Most people don't want to be a millionaire. They want to spend a million dollars. You know, that's the opposite of a millionaire, someone who saved a million and invested it. It's easy to be on that treadmill and keep going and really thinking about the contentment. Something that jumped out to me as I read these essays is how often people talk about all those other factors that you just mentioned, family, community, giving, having time to do the things they want to do, read, hike. And so one thing that I sort of picked up on was a lot of these finance experts don't want to spend all their time thinking about their own finances. A lot of people mentioned, you know, I just go with the index fund. I'd rather spend time with my kids. I'd rather, I'd rather read. I'd rather do something with my time that's more enriching in my life than to try to overanalyze and get one or two more percentage points of alpha in my portfolio. And that's not something that you, you read about in this book. You read about people that seem very concerned about those bigger issues. That's true. I'm one of those people, meaning that I spent two decades trying to pick the best fund managers and wasn't particularly good at it. And kind of, you know, thought about the fact that not really nobody's particularly good at it. And, you know, fast forward to where I'm at in my life now, you know, just focusing on the things that bring me that deeper source of contentment. And as you go through the essays, and I don't want to leave people with the impression that the whole book is just pie in the sky philosophizing, because most of the chapters get into some level of specificity in terms of thinking about funding their kids' college education or saving for retirement. There are certain people like Christine Benz, who, you know, my first boss at Morningstar and mentor and now a dear friend, she gives tickers on what she owns. I mean, so there's specifics. I mean, Howard Lindzen, super successful venture capitalist, all around funny and good guy, goes into detail. Josh Brown, Ted Seides, others go into detail on the, the investments that they make. But what everybody seemed to do in one way or another was tie it to that broader sense of just living a good life. And inescapably, that had to do with how you serve others, how you support or help your family. There's a number of people in the volume, like Leanne Miko and Cheryl Penny and Tyrone Ross and, and others who you know grew up in not good situations financially. It wasn't surprising in the way that you asked the original question about surprise, but it was so powerful to me to see somewhat of a correlation between those who started out with very little and those who were most devoted to giving back so much. It's like awesome. That was something that I picked up on as well, that a number of the writers grew up in households where money was scarce, sometimes 
real dysfunctional relationships with money. Very little acumen was passed on to them as children as far as money. And as these individuals grew up, they realized and they gathered those skills and gained those skills. They realized they could give back. That's become a big part of their life. And you also see the power of financial acumen, just gaining that acumen so that you can control what you can control in your financial life to focus on maybe other parts of your life too. You see people that are out of control financially and it really hampers the ability to lead the good life or find that reflective happiness that you're talking about. One thing I'd throw in there is that I often talk about the achievement of funded contentment through the alignment of purpose and planning. So one without the other doesn't work. So just thinking about purpose and the big picture stuff, that's great. You can read and just engage in you know that form of thoughtfulness. But if you don't have the specifics nailed down, it's very easy to get off the rails. In fact, staying on the rails would be close to impossible. And conversely, if you're only focused on the planning piece without consideration of the bigger picture, you're probably going to just be on a path toward wanting more and or just stuck in the weeds of buying the right insurance policy and being in the right portfolio and owning the right bonds and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I guess I'll call it sort of a, an accident, pleasantly accidental, that almost everybody in their own way talked about how they calibrate purpose and planning. They talked about what was important to them. And in most cases, it's really straightforward. It's your kids. It's your partner. It's your parents. It's the people around you. So, But it's wonderful to read from the bottom up what the specificity is for every particular person. But it's that calibration of purpose with planning that I think comes through. So when Nina O'Neill, for example, goes into, if I recall, a fair amount of detail on both her kids' 529 plans as well as some of her retirement plans, that's embedded within a broader story as to what's important to her. And that's why that chapter is awesome. Like It lands really well because they're both there. I really enjoyed Nina's essay. She talks about, in fact, I pulled a quote. She says, my financial goals are not built on big returns or grandiose dreams. They anchor on financial stability and living a fulfilling life. And it's centered around her husband and her kids, which she talks about. And just to hit on another point that you mentioned, each essay writer has their own unique way they look at money. And there's no right answer. There's no universal truth that flows throughout the book as far as specifically where you put your money. There's some authors paid their house off. Some decided not to. Some are not in a situation to be able to do that. Some are investing in their own businesses. Some of them put all 100% of their equities in their retirement fund, of their assets and equities in their retirement fund because they have a long ways to go. Others are more conservative. Some tend towards dividend investing. I mean, it just runs the gamut. But what you get a chance to see is why they're making those decisions, how it aligns with their plan and their purpose sort of align. And they come to that decision that works for them. And I think that's sort of the magic of the book. I'm really glad that you enjoyed it because, you know, as we've become friends, just come to know you as just a very thoughtful person on these topics. I mean, were there other chapters that you were surprised by or sort of hit home? I think this is going to be the joy when people read the book is what people take away from Blair or from Debbie 
Freeman or from Ashby Daniels or whatever essay you go to, there's going to be an essay that jumps out at you and aligns with your kind of purpose and your plan. Something that really stuck with me, I think this was Debbie Freeman, and she said that she creates a different account for different goals she has in her life. And I've obviously heard of that idea before. I've thought about doing that. I think I'll start doing that based on her essay and the way she told her story and my, at times, inability to sometimes pull the trigger on, say, a vacation or spending in some way, which I know will give me that fulfilling happiness. But yet, you know, because I'm also concerned about saving, sometimes I won't do that. But maybe if I create an account at well. So I think that's just one example. I think people are going to find the one or two things that work for them. Someone might say, you know what, I am going to pay my house off. Or I know there was another author who didn't pay his house off, but saved up enough money that it kind of balanced out his mortgage. And he said, that's enough for me. Just different approaches for different people. You know, the idea that hopefully thousands of people are going to engage at least some of the essays in the book, and they'll probably take things away that I never even thought about. I mean, every chapter is four or five pages. Like, they're really short. You know, we, we did suggest to everybody that about 1,500 words was right, so call it four to five pages. Some came in a little shorter, some came in a little longer, but on average, that's how long they are. And so I think one of the things that readers will enjoy is that the time commitment is very small because God knows we're all overwhelmed with too many things to read. I'm sitting here talking to you and get palpitations from the fact that I've got like, you know, 27 open tabs in Google Chrome. And when am I ever going to get through this crap? And that's just today. So the fact that in less than five pages, you're going to get a story about somebody that you might find interesting and 25 five-page essays, the fact that you might get one or two things to help do something a little bit better or different in your money life. How cool is that? I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is great. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where you could read an essay before you go to bed at night, and it's a small little five-minute investment, seven-minute investment, put it down, pick it up again the next night, or whenever you have time, you don't have to attack the book in big chunks. It's great in that way. A handful of people who have seen the book, everyone's done it differently. Did you start at the beginning? I have to kind of go through sequentially because I don't bounce around that well. And I did see some people on the list that I was eager to get to, but I decided not to do that. And some of the more interesting essays from my perspective were people I hadn't heard of before, like, for example, Desarte Yarnway. He's only 29 years old, first generation American. But what I took away from Desarte is that he talks a lot about servant leadership and being a part of his community. He very much grew up in an immigrant community, first-generation American. So giving back to that community and being a leader and serving it is really important. And talk about purpose and plan. He's aligning his financial plan around that purpose. And you can see he's getting fulfillment. And he's at a young age, so he's really making the investments now to have that return later in life. So that was really inspiring. Yeah, his essay is remarkable. And I'm, I probably sounded like a bit of a cheerleader for all these essays. All of them were written in Lake Wobegon. They're all above average, but they're really good. And the Sartes is special. I remember clicking on the attachment and reading it. My jaw kind of dropped. I read it and I was like, wow, this is beautiful. And, you know, for those in the 
financial Twitter community who know Desarte, they already know that this guy is the future of the wealth management industry. Him and people like him who can articulate these things at such a young age, because I can assure you that at age 29, I didn't know my ass from my elbow. And I read some of these younger folks, whether it be Ashby, you know, or Leanne or Desarte or others, and I'm like, wow, I feel pretty good about the future. Yeah, that's amazing because I thought Desarte's essay was very, very well written. I'll just pull out a couple quotes from that essay so the listeners can get a sense for it and maybe you can reflect on it. At one point he says, the intersection of my time and values provides a compass for how I should invest my dollars. And I'll give you one other. He says, in talking about servant leadership, he says, if our strategies only center around us, we've missed our chance to permeate the most important things in life, love, faith, joy, good health, and the bond of community. That's it. He nails it. It's a beautiful sentiment. These writers also talk about the hard decisions to get there. I mean, to be the kind of leader Desarte Yarnway is aspiring to be, and it sounds like he already is, requires a certain amount of discipline in life, uh, financial discipline. We talked about a little earlier what Morgan Housel called um, keeping the goalposts from moving. You see it over and over again, the emphasis on letting some things go, not spending money at, at every point, every time you have a desire. Ashby Daniels had a great line. He says, it's healthy to have wants go unfulfilled. That really stuck with me too. It's something I'm trying to teach my kids, but it's something I have to relearn constantly. You know, it's it's healthy to have your certain desires left unfulfilled. That's just life. And by doing that, you're making the hard decisions and you're going to get to that reflective happiness you're talking about, not just the reactive happiness. That's right. Leaving a little bit on the table, wanting a little bit more, there is something, you know, healthy about that. And other essays. Alex Chalekian, Rainey Braxton, Ryan Kruger, Mike Underhill, who I actually went to high school with, we graduated the same year from high school in Pittsburgh. I either didn't know or completely forgot his family background, which was quite interesting and obviously influential to him. But yeah, just person after person, they're just figuring it out. And where I'm at in my career in terms of wanting to help advisors and, and their clients and companies and their employees, like having a pretty granular sense that everybody, no matter how technically knowledgeable, is always figuring it out and not just making decisions algorithmically or by some economic orthodoxy. There's something liberating about it. Maybe a little bit scary for some, but also liberating because it means that however you choose to chart your course, there's a chance that that's the right way to go. And the joke earlier about painting the bullseye after the arrow has been shot, like there's actually, I think, some purpose and wisdom in that because I could look at my resume and say, hey, I've had a pretty good career, but man, I mean, I've gotten fired from job, had friends that have betrayed me. I've had crappy stuff go on, you know, on multiple levels, including some pretty serious levels. But lo and behold, hey, like it's my third book and look how great everything's going. And I got this new company. But, you know, it's part of it's just a show. And hopefully, even if people don't write their own chapter in their mind or even on paper, they can see that a lot of people who they might respect and hopefully continue to respect have struggled to paint that bullseye. 
because Lord knows the arrows have gone all over the place. That's one of the key takeaways for me in the book is just the human experience of struggling with this stuff and hearing other people like me and finance experts, people who are advising other people about money. They're human just like us and they're struggling and we're struggling. So every day you make a little progress or you put in the work to move towards your goal of where you want to be financially and with other aspects of your life. And you see that coming through in these essays that these contributors are really intentional about what they want to achieve and they're trying to get there. Some of the themes that I took away are long-term thinking, start early, live below your means, save, big bias towards index funds, although not entirely, I would say across the essays, but a lot of the essays pointed towards the value of, you know, the market returns pretty good. If you want to go get the extra bit of return, then there's going to be some work there. But, you know, some contributors really enjoyed the chase and they weren't afraid, they weren't embarrassed about it. And they were just, you know, that's what they want to do. But those were some of the big, you know, avoid debt. And although, you know, a lot of people talked about borrowing to pay off their house. And so there's no exact answer. There's some larger themes, but I think everyone's going to take away from this one or two or three different tactics to kind of rechart their course. That's certainly what I did. And I really enjoyed it. That's great. Yes, you nailed, I think, a lot of the broad themes. And for those of us who, you know, are active in thinking about the impact of behavioral finance on the investment industry, on the advice business, this line that simple doesn't mean easy is very relevant a lot of the time. Because think about the things you just said, think about all the observations or insights that the contributors had in terms of taking a long run view and avoid style creep and don't take on too much debt. And there's a certain obviousness to those. So the issue isn't IQ, it's EQ. It's okay. Yeah, you understand that you need to take a long-term perspective on saving and investing so that you don't run out of dough too early in life. That's not that hard of a lesson to intellectually understand. It's an incredibly difficult lesson to understand from a behavioral point of view. In some ways, maybe these are, to some extent, behavioral examples or behavior that can sometimes be emulated by others in order to stick to those goals. Because the goals are easy to understand, or I should say simple to understand, but not at all easy to follow. But there's also plenty of stories of families that have gone off the rails or were in bad spots or at times just making bad decisions. So hopefully there's a little bit of behavioral inspiration there for the lessons that take away. Because imagine like the points that you just made. Let's just make that the uh, kind of the book jacket text. Hey, the, you know, the, if you read this book, you're going to learn profound insights like invest for the long run, buy low and sell high. You know, own a diversified portfolio, save more than you spend. Like, okay, absolutely. Like A plus advice. Nobody does it. Yeah. It's like you said, it's simple to state that stuff. It's really hard to do day to day. And what you have here are 25 human stories of how to do it. There's ups and downs in here. There's divorces. There's things that happen unexpectedly in people's lives that cause setbacks financially, there's struggles, there's taking care of 
say, a sibling that maybe isn't as well off as you. All the things that happen in life that you don't see in that other book, the one that just says, think long-term and let your money compound. This is actually how the sausage is made and you get to see it. It's really fascinating that way. Right. Invest for the long run. Well, if you have a sibling in need, what does that advice have to do with anything? And another piece, and I'm sure you're going to go there, but I wanted to flag it is just the contribution that Carl Richards made to the project in terms of the illustrations. I mean, Carl's a legend. He's been an inspiration to me for years. I wouldn't have had the idea for the geometry of wealth if it weren't for him, because I saw how he was able to capture complex ideas through simple drawings. And it felt right for me to try to do something similar, like just simple perspectives on complex ideas. And so you know, circle, triangle, square, purpose, priorities, decisions. That's my core mental model for achieving funded contentment. And what a wonderful world where I could pick up the phone and call Carl and say, hey, do you want to contribute to this? And originally he was going to contribute a chapter and backed out. And I was really bummed, but then suggested like, well, maybe I'll draw, instead of doing my own thing, maybe I'll draw or interpret each person's chapter through a custom sketch. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah. Like, I would have never had the courage to ask you that. And you know, it's 25 times the work, but you want to do it. And so I think one of the real bonuses to this volume is that you get 25 original Carl Richards drawings. I'm glad you mentioned that because that really did enhance the experience. Each essay comes with this simple yet profound sketch that really captures the essence of the chapter. And you get to see it before you read the essay. And what it did for me was give me a little mental sketch of what I was about to read. And sometimes it really whets your appetite and gets you really curious, like, okay, how are they going to talk about that? You've got short-term and long-term kind of balancing out, or you've got the intersection of what you value and how you spend your time, I think is the X there of Desarte Yarnway's sketch. In closing, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners as far as this book. Is there anything you've changed personally about your investment after reading these or any final comments about how I invest my money? The book has kind of just increased my faith in people's ability to do what's right for them in whatever way is possible because everybody is struggling with something and that comes through in these chapters. Sort of a post-it note aphorism, but be kinder than you want to because everybody is struggling with something you probably don't know about. So, you know, that gets verified in spades, you know, through some of the chapters in this book. So these are not the funnest of times for our society. So there was something kind of affirming about the humanity that came through these stories. The career I'm now devoting to applying behavioral finance to the world and helping people make better decisions. And maybe it's a selfish perspective, but this further affirms that kind of career turn because it's clear that whatever I could learn about the efficient markets hypothesis or debate with someone over the virtue of value versus growth investing is so terribly unimportant relative to helping people understand their money life in a way that it didn't before, giving them permission to talk about their story and thinking it 
through from their perspective as opposed to the perspective that one might read in a textbook or in you know any book written by an investment expert so you know that i guess it's very affirming for me for what it's worth and you know one thing we did in the book that hopefully people will enjoy or get a kick out of is that we left several blank pages at the end lined blank pages where you know we basically say tell your own story you don't have to show it to anybody but write it down we gave all the authors 1500 words give yourself 1500 words to go tell your story and it doesn't matter if you're not a quote-unquote expert it just matters if money is in some ways important in your life and the fact is that's a hundred percent of the people there's no escaping money the idea that money is unimportant or money doesn't buy happiness is hooey and so hopefully this book can emphasize a whole variety of themes that might have been important to somebody, give them some forms of permission and validation to engage in their own story. And even, again, if it's just for yourself, privately, try to write it down. I think it's a really positive and affirming experience. Well, I know for myself, I really don't know what I'm thinking until I try to write it down, until I try to get my thoughts on paper. And I know that's sort of a, an aphorism that gets overplayed, but it's true for me. So it will be revealing for me to do that. And I also think it's a way as a parent, you know, we're both parents and have teenage kids. It's a way to start to have that conversation if you haven't already about passing on our own values, our own perspectives on money to our children. One other thing I, I think I took away from these essays is my children will probably have a different relationship to money than I will. And I just got to be comfortable with that too. Hopefully it'll be a healthy one. I'll pass on what I can, but they'll have their own unique experience of how money is going to interact with their purpose and their life and their plan. So I guess I've taken that from this project. Brian, where can people find out more about you and this new project that you're working on? My day-to-day virtual office, so to speak, is on Twitter, where I'm hanging out with other financial types, behavioral finance folks. So I'm at Brian Portnoy. And I have a new company called Shaping Wealth. And the idea is to help people understand and strive for and even achieve funded contentment. And that's a business I've been quietly building for a few months now. Maybe I'll invite myself back on next year sometime and we can talk about that. But at shapingwealth.com, I give some background to what my team and I are at the very early stages of building. And, And it very much revolves around kind of practically executing on this notion of funded contentment. Well, great. I can't wait to learn more about that as that project expands and grows. Brian, thank you for being on The Good Life. It's my pleasure. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.